This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and with me, as always, is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi again, Alan. Good to be here, Darren. Now, we are recording this on Tuesday, 14th of May, and as our Australian listeners will know, we have a federal election coming up this weekend on Saturday the 18th. After an election is called, the government goes into caretaker mode, which in simple terms means governing is essentially placed on autopilot, I guess you would say, with no major policy decisions being made, except of course in emergency situations. That does not mean that the Australian government stops working. In addition to keeping the trains running on time and things like that, government departments, including DFAT, Defence, Treasury, Home Affairs, etc., prepare what are called incoming government briefs. Now, as this podcast most assuredly aspires to the status of venerable Canberra institution, we thought that we would offer our own incoming government brief today. Alan, can you kick us off then by introducing this type of document to our listeners? What is it and what are the processes and controversies, if any, that go into producing it? Well, all departments, as you said, prepare incoming government briefs for new ministers. Um, One of those briefs is for the current government if it's returned, and the other one, which is thicker, is for the opposition. Uh, The briefs are designed to do a number of things. Uh, First of all, to explain to the incoming minister, particularly if it's someone from the opposition, what the department she or he is responsible for is and does what it, you know how it's structured secondly what the immediate issues facing the incoming government will be and how the policies of the party set out during the election campaign will be implemented and uh, this is especially important if there's a change of government so party manifestos and speeches are scoured for detail in the past these briefs have usually been in traditional written form but technologies changing these things and I know that some departments this time around for example are experimenting with uh, with videos the world doesn't stop for Australian elections so an incoming government is uh, is just going to be hit straight with immediate problems within weeks the new defense minister and you know whichever party wins we're going to have a new defense minister will probably be in Singapore for the Shangri-La dialogue and the prime minister will be at the G20 leaders meeting in Tokyo at the end of June. So both of them will be plunged into meetings with the leaders of the countries most important to Australia. I note that for our listeners, some of the previous incoming government briefs have been posted online uh, pursuant to freedom of information requests. I had a look at one from the Department of Defence from 2010. It is 106 pages long It's heavily redacted, an indication, I suppose, of how much sensitive information was included. It has 16 chapters. Chapter 1 is titled The Strategic Bases of Defence Planning. 
Chapter 2 is on Afghanistan and Pakistan, and you recall this was a major focus for the still relatively new Obama administration in 2010, after all, Osama bin Laden was still alive. Chapter 3 was on other significant defence operations. I imagine Iraq was in there. Chapter 4 on strategic reform, all the way down to Chapter 15 on establishing effective cabinet relationships and Chapter 16 on industry relationships. Now, the incoming government brief produced by the Australia in the World podcast is only going to be three chapters long. But as you say, Alan, in these days of technology, we'll be delivering ours in audio form rather than written form or indeed video form, and there'll be no redactions for our listeners. Chapter one will be titled The Structure of National Security and Foreign Policy, Chapter two, Donald Trump, and Chapter three, China. So let's get into it. Chapter one, the structure of national security and foreign policy. Alan, I've elected to follow the approach of the Defence Department document that I read and lead off not with a substantive topic but a process topic. What is the headline message you would want made on the process of policymaking for an incoming minister? Well, look, one point we've made often and several other commentators have reinforced it during the course of this um, election campaign is that the international challenges facing the next Australian government are greater than ever. This has obvious consequences for the way in which governments make policy, the structure of the organisation around them. It's obvious, and we talked about this uh, last time, of course, Mm. that we need a greater alignment of economic, national security and foreign and defence policy. So the question for the government is how to ensure that it's getting the advice it needs to make the big decisions. And that includes have all those who need to be consulted been consulted? Is the advice contestable? Uh, Is it framed properly? Now, all that can be done in different ways, but it's an immediate responsibility of the incoming government to sort it out. And that then leads to questions about the structure of of government decision-making, who's going to be a member of what cabinet committees, for example, and the machinery of government, the precise purpose of the different departments and agencies. I mean, you're, you're outside government, Darren. What does it look like from where you, you sit? Yes, well, I suppose having never worked in Canberra in the federal government, I don't want to presume that I can add much value on this, but I will make one observation, and that is in the last few years, I have been asked to give presentations or training to six government departments, Prime Minister and Cabinet, DFAT, Treasury, the Office of National Assessments, now the Office of National Intelligence, defence and home affairs. And so you've got six different government entities, all of whom want to hear from an international relations academic with a fairly narrow focus. And of course, while I'm grateful for the opportunity to be helpful, I'm ambivalent on the implications of this. I guess my takeaway is that today there are meaningfully significant international portfolios in more and more government departments. International issues affect a much wider range of policy briefs and in turn government departments who maybe 20 or 30 years ago would never have imagined it are now making policy that affects Australia's position in the world. They are sending delegations abroad, maybe not practicing foreign policy and diplomacy per se, but certainly doing things that affect our overall foreign policy position. But each government has its own expertise, its own reporting structure, its own culture And of course, many issues, there's going to be lots of overlap across different departments. 
And my observation isn't even limited to federal agencies. You know, I think back to our discussion on a previous episode of the Victorian government's decision to sign a memorandum of understanding with China on the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, that's a state-level decision that nonetheless had larger, broader national implications. I'm sure it's not gone unnoticed around the world that the Victorian government did this, not just in Beijing and Washington, but further afield. But even putting federal state issues to one side, I guess my answer is very similar to yours, Alan, and I wonder whether we have the right overarching structure to integrate and coordinate all these moving parts. And I guess that leads to my next question, which is maybe the two biggest decisions that were made by the Turnbull slash Morrison governments in this space were the creation of the giant Home Affairs Department in 2013, and then last year with the revamp of our intelligence architecture, including uh, scaling up in size of the agency you used to lead, Alan, the, the Office of National Assessments, now called the Office of National Intelligence. Do either of these particular decisions merit comment in our incoming government brief? Well, ONI had bipartisan support when, when it was set up and it's a statutory body. It operates under its own act. So you'd need to amend legislation to change it. So I don't think that's an issue for either side. So I don't think you'd need to address that. Mm -hmm. uh, home Affairs, I think, is a bit different. The Labor Party has said it would review the Department of Home, home Affairs. So if you're doing a brief for the Labor Party, you'd have to address that. Shorten said during the campaign that Labor would keep the department, but that still leaves a number of questions around its structure and manageability. Uh, the media has covered some of the administrative problems. We've seen quite a lot about that. And there's also the issue of the attached agencies like ASIO and the Australian Federal Police. These were shifted from the Attorney General's portfolio to the Home Affairs portfolio. So you can keep a Home Affairs department, but move those um, agencies uh, back to Attorney General. So those structural problems are much more in play, I think, with the Department of Home Affairs than with ONI. And so you think a brief might sort of say, if you wanted to do this, this is what these are the kinds of issues that might be raised in reintegrating ASIO back into the Attorney Generals, as an example? Yeah, 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 exactly that sort of thing. What what are the practical, what are the legal, what mm. are the policy implications of, uh, of doing it? Interesting. Well, if we can stay on process for one more question, I wanted to ask you, Alan, about the National Security Committee of Cabinet and whether it needs its own staff, you know, something like the White House model of the National Security Council, where you have dedicated professionals uh, usually coming across from each of the government departments, working together full-time to ensure, as you said, properly framed and contested advice? Or is the current process of coordination and contestation sufficient? Well, I just don't think that something like the uh, White House uh, model works in a Westminster system like ours. The members of the National Security Committee here are ministers. They're members of parliament in their own right. They're not appointed by the uh, president mm. and serving at his pleasure, as happens in the uh, States. And they have their own portfolio departments and uh, portfolio responsibilities, rather, in their own departments. So they need their own sources of advice. The way that we've traditionally done this in Australia is to utilise the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is also the Secretariat to cabinet to drive and coordinate 
that uh, advice. I um, ran the international division in that department for a while, and that was uh, what we what we did. And I must say that I haven't seen a better way of doing it. Okay, well, let's turn to chapter two, simply titled Donald J. Trump. Well, you've managed to avoid talking too much about Donald Trump and his administration in recent weeks, and it's been a bit of a relief, actually. But for the Australia and the World podcast's incoming government brief, President Trump cannot be ignored. Any incoming government is going to be broadly familiar with the character of Trump and the general direction of his America First foreign policy. So there is no need for our briefing to give too much background there. What I do want to do is provide a couple of stories from recent weeks to give us some up-to-date context. First, listeners will recall that the Trump administration pulled out of the Obama administration-negotiated Iran nuclear deal last year. Well, earlier this month, National Security Advisor John Bolton issued a statement saying that the US had credible intelligence indicating threats to US interests and personnel in the region, and that in response, the US would deploy an aircraft carrier group and bombers, both as a deterrent from an attack happening and to respond rapidly with force if one actually occurred. However, the statement did not go into much detail, leaving everyone else to wonder what the exact nature of the threats were. One possibility was attacks against US troops in Iraq and Syria. And also, whether Bolton might have inflated the nature of these risks. Bolton himself is, of course, a noted hawk on Iran and has been pushing Trump to be more aggressive. Then, just a few days after that statement, on the one-year anniversary of the Trump withdrawal from the deal, Iran announced two decisions that, if implemented, would effectively pull itself out of the deal too. The first was that it would stockpile low-enriched uranium that could be used to build a weapon, and second, it gave the Europeans a 60-day deadline to start trading with Iran again, in violation now of US sanctions, or Tehran would start producing high-enriched uranium. And if the Europeans, of course, started trading with Iran, that would invite US sanctions on European companies and exacerbate transatlantic tensions further. In a separate but related development on the theme of exacerbating US-EU tensions, last week Mike Pompeo cancelled what would have been his first trip to Germany as Secretary of State, upsetting Washington's most important partner in Europe. This is a very sharp contrast with the events of just yesterday, the 13th of May, when President Trump hosted Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban at the White House, who has famously used nationalism and the immigration issue in particular to become increasingly authoritarian and repressive in recent years, stifling independent discourse, including expelling the prestigious Central European University and speaking positively of Putin's Russia. Alan, against the backdrop of these stories, can you offer your assessment of the challenges for the incoming government posed by the Trump presidency? If the coalition government is returned, they're well used to it by now. They'd no doubt deny this, but from where I sit, the approach they've adopted has been one of basically keeping our head down and trying to sustain the ordinary governmental links between us at the uh, at the working level through the administration. It's going to be harder if it's a Labor government. The language of Shorten and uh, Richard Miles and Penny Wong has been entirely consistent with long-term bipartisan policy on the alliance. But they've also talked unspecifically about a, uh, quote, more independent policy. 
And there are certainly issues, um, climate change is one, on which an incoming Labor government would have greater differences than the coalition from the uh, Trump administration. So Washington is going to be paying some attention to the reporting out of the US uh, embassy in Canberra. Either way, and we seem to have (laughs) said this a a lot, um, (laughs) this administration is unlike any other that Australia has experienced on both interests and values. We're in new territory. You you talked about um, what's happening in Iran. On both sides of Australian politics, uh, we've endorsed the Iran nuclear deal almost alone among American allies. We've had an embassy in Tehran for most of the period since the uh, Islamic Revolution. And in this part of the world, in um, Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, as we talked about last time, Mm. it's it's been Salafi jihadist terrorist groups motivated in many cases by Wahhabist uh, clerics supported by Saudi Arabia, which have been the problem in this part of the world rather than Shia terrorist groups backed by Tehran. So how would we respond to calls for Australian engagement in ramping up military pressure around the Straits of Hormuz? Do we support what seems to be at least John Bolton's enthusiastic support for the idea that increased military and economic pressure is going to generate regime change in Iran. And you mentioned uh, Viktor Orban's White House visit. This is about as strong an endorsement of the anti-immigrant authoritarian populist right in Europe as it's possible to get. The values that are being backed here are certainly not those of free speech and the rule of law, and it undermines uh, the US's older allies in the EU. But am I being too negative, Darren? (laughs) I think I've asked you the same question Previously, Alan, no, I don't think you are. I think your judgment is correct. And maybe this is an issue where it could maybe be seen as glass half full or glass half empty because I'm slightly more optimistic. But even though my assessment is the same, things have been bad. But you could also say they've been incremental rather than radical in their change. Truly disruptive actions such as withdrawing from NATO or launching a war against Iran so far have not transpired. And I think part of the reason for this, as I've argued in previous episodes, is the fact that American political institutions, while under immense attack from Trump um, and his enablers in the Republican Party, have still been able to constrain the worst excesses. With a Democratic House of Representatives and a close election campaign ahead, I wonder whether it will really be in Trump's interest to do anything too disruptive. Am I worried about a war with Iran? Yes. Or closer to home with North Korea? Absolutely. But I think there is less Australia can do to affect these outcomes. And so our focus should be doing what we can on the margins to strengthen the rules and institutions around the world, building partnerships with, sadly, what seems to be a narrowing range of like-minded countries on these issues. And yes, indeed, as you mentioned, thinking about what we would say and do if we were asked to contribute to a Strait of Hormuz type situation. But other than that, try to stay as neutral as possible uh, towards the Trump administration. You know, much as you say, like the coalition has done. Don't ask too much from them. Don't try to upset them. Avoid rocking the boat and work with bureaucrats instead of political appointees as much as possible. And I think, you know, when you do need to deal with Trump, remember that the key to success is his ego and much like showing respect and saving face is key to successful diplomacy in 
Asia take a similar line towards Trump. And then looking beyond him, you know, build those connections with rising figures on both sides of the aisle, especially within Congress, so that we have established relations when Trump leaves office, whether that is in 18 months' time or four years after that. Now, Alan, you suggested that earlier on in the podcast that party manifestos and speeches would be scoured by bureaucrats in order to give departments some clue as to what a new government would want. Here it would be the Labor government as they're preparing these incoming government briefs. And you just mentioned then uh, calls by Labor figures for a more independent foreign policy. So is this the kind of thing where you would expect the briefs would have ideas for what more independence might look like? Uh, I, I don't think that's actually knowable by the preparers of the briefs in, in government departments, more independent than what, uh, with regard to whom and regarding what issue. It's mm. entirely context dependent, really. So I think the briefers would just ensure that on a whole range of issues from uh, security to multilateral institutions, the scope of the options that they provided to government was as broad as possible. One example of this, and it's a pressing example, really, is what distinctly Australian messages and initiatives and on what subjects could the Australian PM raise in Osaka at the G20 when he goes there in June. Indeed, and that really brings us, I think, to Chapter 3 of our incoming government brief, which is on China, uh, because I do wonder whether the focus of the Osaka meetings at the end of June is going to be the trade war. And that, of course, is the the one element of the US um, Trump White House that we haven't discussed yet, but it really bridges into a discussion about China. So let's move into to chapter three. And I also want to frame our discussion of this chapter with some recent events. Uh, to begin, we had the second Belt and Road Forum that was held at the end of April, following on from the inaugural event in 2017. This year, the forum came at a very different moment in the trajectory of this grand-scale initiative, with the international environment increasingly turning, I guess, guarded, uh, sceptical, and sometimes even hostile towards the BRI. Critics have pointed to flaws in the projects themselves, such as poor financial viability, uh, lower environmental, labour and governance standards, and they've also pointed towards negative consequences, including corruption, mounting debt obligations, and potential strategic downsides, which our listeners will recall in our geoeconomics episode, I was terming negative security externalities. And all of these things might be following as a result of increased Chinese influence or control of certain assets. Nevertheless, this event was still very well attended, including by 37 leaders from Putin, Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, after Italy had recently endorsed the initiative, UK Chancellor Philip Hammond, uh, and 10 ASEAN heads of state, including Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir, who of course had previously been very critical of the initiative. During the proceedings themselves, President Xi Jinping struck a much more moderate and nuanced tone, I would say, outlining steps China would take to improve the projects and promising, quote, zero tolerance on corruption. The joint statement, the communique, con contained several mentions of, quote, high quality projects and standards, a term that was absent from the 2017 statement. The government also, the Chinese government also released a framework for analysing debt sustainability and People's Bank of China Governor Yi Gang 
stated that the central bank would construct a quote open market market sorry open market oriented financing and investment system these details i think signal an acknowledgement by china of the criticism of bri and a willingness to do better and rehabilitate the belt and roads image the other major event is obviously the trade war after negotiations in washington failed last week the Trump administration imposed a second round of tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports, and Trump has given Beijing until about the end of this month of May to come up with a new deal, lest tariffs be imposed on all remaining $300 billion of Chinese imports. And then I note overnight the Chinese government has announced its own retaliation, but if I understood the news correctly, has delayed the imposition of this and to let negotiations continue for a little while longer. So, Alan, against this backdrop, what is your headline message on China for our incoming government brief? I'm trying to write something at the moment about the place of values in the Australia-China relationship, so I've been thinking about this. For our incoming government brief, the message is that this is going to get harder as US and Chinese interests diverge and Australia is caught in an uncomfortable squeeze. A lasting trade war will damage the global economy, even if a solution to the dispute uh, comes, it could well be at cost to Australian interests if part of the deal provides uh, the US with preferential market access for its agriculture and energy exporters. Uh, We now have, I noticed the Director of Policy Planning and the State Department couching the uh, contest between the US and China in civilization terms. She told uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, um, this is the first time we will have a great power competitor that is not Caucasian. Now, given all these problems, the Australia-China relationship isn't where it needs to be. Um, That doesn't mean capitulating to every Chinese demand or staying silent where we disagree, but it does mean managing our way past our current strains to the sort of mature relationship where we're talking frequently to each other to manage difficulties and to build on areas of mutual interest. And that's going to require uh, personal engagement and diplomacy of the highest order by incoming ministers. What do you want to see in the brief, uh, Darren? Alan, I actually really struggled in thinking about my answer to this question because I couldn't think of much that was radical or or, or, you know other than I guess the proverbial do no harm and on reflecting on why I couldn't think um, of much I came sort of to the view that it feels like you know for as long as China has posed a major strategic challenge and this is of course at least for the last decade our government's China policy has been criticized from all sides the criticisms include that the government of the day has been too insensitive crude and unnecessarily inflammatory. Others argue that the policy has been complacent, directionless and lacking in conviction or any sense of strategy. And of course, there are always going to be politicians who do and say unfortunate things to varying degrees. You've got Sam Dastiari on the more serious end, and indeed his missteps cost him his political career. And then, for example, you've got Conchetta Firavanti-Wells in arguably a less aggravated category with some comments she made last year. Such mistakes, I think, are the nature of our democratic politics and having elected politicians. Yes, I would have preferred that we joined the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, a bit sooner. I would have preferred that Malcolm Turnbull hadn't used the term stand up 
in the context of responding to foreign interference. And today I think that Australia it would probably have more impact from inside the Belt and Road tent than from without, even as there is space to be more creative in marshalling our own technical expertise on the question of infrastructure. But when I consider our major policy initiatives over the past decade, whether it's Marines in Darwin, the TPP, foreign interference laws too, while these weren't necessarily executed or messaged exactly how I would have done it, I'm not privy to all of the relevant factors and constraints, and overall each outcome falls roughly within a band that I deem acceptable, I suppose. Getting the balance right on China is really hard, and I'm just not sure there is any country in the world that would award itself a very high grade. Our political dysfunction is not unique to Australia. If you look around the OECD, you see serious blunders being made regularly far worse than us on our worst day. So I think there's a deeper truth here that, that politics and policy are harder because there are more actors with power, there's more pressure to respond to more complex challenges, but faster with more imprudent speed. Alan, if you'll indulge me for just a moment more on a small digression, one of the most insightful columns I read last year was by Tyler Cowan, who runs the Marginal Revolution blog, um, and he also writes for Bloomberg, and this column was titled, How Real News is worse than fake news. And I may have mentioned it in before in an earlier episode, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And his argument was that in this modern world, you have mass publics who have virtually free access to information. And one type of information that they now have, much more so than in previous eras, is on the failings of elites. And in that group, you can obviously include policymakers. And now I just want to quote the column Whatever specific failings they may have, there is a more general problem with elites. They are held responsible for the success or failure of the larger society. This is not always fair because business cycles are hard to forecast or prevent, foreign affairs do not always go well, and bad luck can scuttle the best of plans. But today's elite no longer have the cultural shield that once made it harder for outsiders to take a crack at them, however good or bad you may consider those elites to be. The world of the internet, fundamentally a world of information, is reporting on the failures of elites 24-7. He then concludes, quote, If you doubt that truth itself is the problem, just ask yourself, how much would it demoralise you to read the truth about yourself all day long, even if most but not all of those reports were positive. Pretty demoralising, I'd bet. That, in a nutshell, is the predicament of the West, end quote. And so I think you know, this rings true about all policy. Um, and to be clear, this is not to excuse you know, true bad faith, prejudice, cruelty or negligence in policy. But I do see it as a particular predicament of our China policy, mostly because this particular challenge is so darn difficult and mistakes are inevitable. So what's my point for the brief? You know, one or two campaign flare-ups aside, you know, I endorse the bipartisan consensus on China and my brief to government would be to provide as much substance on the issues as possible, point out where we need to learn more, much more, but otherwise I would encourage a new government to keep the ship pointing roughly in the same direction and turn its major focus to the coordination challenges we discussed earlier and some more conceptual challenges such as in the field of geoeconomics discussed a few episodes ago. 
But Alan, you know, we've disagreed in the past on our evaluation of the government's handling of China policy, so I'll give you a chance to respond. Do you have any reactions to that? Well, I'm delighted to say that I think you're actually getting closer to me, Darren. <laughs> uh, we need clarity, consistency and calmness. And I agree with you on Marines and Darwin, the TPP and foreign interference legislation. So perhaps I'm getting closer to you as well. <laughs> but where I disagree is uh, I don't think what you call the bipartisan consensus on China is anywhere near rich and deep enough to sustain us through the trials ahead. Uh, there's still too much uh, pretense involved, too little genuine engagement with the complexities of China, too little uh, subtlety. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Scott Morrison didn't mean quite so clumsily to draw a distinction as he did uh, during the campaign yesterday, I think, between what he called our friend, the United States, and our customer, China. I suspect that what he was trying to draw on was that uh, Dennis Richardson distinction that, that we're friends to both, but an ally only to one. But it was revealing, and we have to do better than this. Yes, yeah, I, I agree. The customer label is, is unhelpful, and I was disappointed that he repeated it on the campaign because it absolutely showed a depth, a lack of depth, I'm sorry, on his part personally. And I was pleased to see that Julie Bishop you know, smacked him down um, <laughs> in response you know, the following day. But Alan, you spoke you know, in your answer of the need for you know, personal engagement and diplomacy of the highest order to you know, help improve things or to improve our policy. But what if that, even to achieve that, it would require some kind of policy shift or maybe even just a change in, in language and rhetoric that would be costly for other reasons, perhaps because of its harm to our values or our security interests in the region or some other aspect of the international order. And this is true not just for China, but also maybe even more so sometimes for the United States under Trump. You know, I think the squeeze you talk about is, you know, the possibility that smaller countries may increasingly have to make policy concessions to major powers to make progress on issues they care about. Is there an effective way of talking about those compromises to a new government or to any government? Well, I, I think that's an excellent question, uh, Darren, and it has to be a serious discussion with whatever government is in office here. One of the things I believe in deeply is the value of diplomacy and the role of foreign policy in managing uh, differences between states. So, any diplomatic negotiation requires what you call some kind of shift. Without that, there's no negotiation. It's just two people yelling at each other. The question is what and how, and that's where the personal engagement and diplomacy of the highest order that I talked about uh, comes in. Uh, you talked about the possibility that smaller countries may increasingly have to make policy concessions to major powers to make progress on issues they care about. I'm not myself sure about that increasingly. I mean, wasn't that ever the case? <laughs> I guess that might be true, but if we are being squeezed uh, you know, by our relationships with the United States and China, maybe the trade-offs are a bit starker. And, and perhaps one way out of this is, you know, if, as you say, that the whole point of diplomacy is to make shifts in policy, to make shifts in positions, the way you, you know, prepare the ground for those is, is to talk 
you know, more candidly. Yeah, no, the, the point is not to make shifts in positions. The point is to reach agreement and that can involve making shifts in position. I just think there's a slight nuance in the difference. Yes, and, and my point is that the consequences of that at home um, have been, I guess, ones that governments have been unwilling to bear. Sometimes you know, other countries are making demands on us that we, and this is both China and the United States, that we don't want to agree to. But of course, the, the, the consequence of that is, is, is a poor relationship. And so, you know, I think this, I guess, gets to your point about a, a more nuanced and deeper discussion. Um, and, and this is including with the Australian people about some of the trade-offs involved here, because yeah, at the headline outcome is, you know, poor relations, you know, with, with, with the PRC. Um, and perhaps that's easy to criticise by itself as an outcome that could, should be improved upon. But to get to a place where relations are better involves a very complex and, and costly, potentially costly pathway that people don't understand, uh, at least not well enough. Yeah, and there's nothing uh, entirely new about this. Uh, Gareth Evans used to say that the Australian media only had one story about any Australian government's relationship with Asia, it was either row or kowtow. And uh, <laughs> that's still, still the same. Well, what a, what a great way to end our incoming government brief uh, today, Alan. So let's, as always, move to our final segment, reading, listening and watching, an appendix of the brief, if you will. Alan, what have you been reading, listening or watching this week? Well, given our discussion about the United States, um, my reading has been an essay in the London Re Review of Books by the Columbia University historian Adam Tooze called Is This the End of the American Century? Tooze has written a very well-reviewed book on the history of the global financial mm. crisis called Crashed, and it's on my, um, my reading list. I haven't got there yet. But the core of Tooze's argument in this piece is, and I'm quoting him here, it's a gross exaggeration to talk of an end to the American world order. The two pillars of its global power, military and financial, are still firmly in place. He points out, for example, that the Trump administration's requested defence expenditure for 2020, uh, $750 billion, is greater than the spending of the next seven countries in the world combined. What has ended to says is any claim on the part of American democracy to provide a political model. So it's a really good piece. Mm, very interesting and I think very appropriate for our incoming government brief, as is mine, because I'm going to suggest some readings uh, on the Belt and Road Initiative. And they're all sort of shorter ones. Um, the first two are both blog posts and I'll put links uh, to these as well as the twos piece in the show notes. The first, the first is by uh, Tanner Greer at the Scholars Stage blog, uh, and it's a post about the domestic political economy of the Belt and Road Initiative, and it also quotes some academic work by UK-based scholars Lee Jones and Zheng Jihan. And the second post, I'm going to group it together, is by Andrew Batson uh, at Gavakal Dragonomics on his personal blog on a similar topic. And the idea here is about all of the sort of domestic political motivations for Belt and Road and, and some of the complex dynamics between provinces um, and, in, and managing state-owned enterprises and how that is, is causing you know, Chinese actors to want to expand and go out. Um, and so the argument here is that much of what we interpret as 
grand strategic, you know, um, grand strategizing by China um, is far from that and actually just the result of, of, of more sort of um, a lower level uh, political dynamics um, and, and as a result, you know, is much less organized and coherent than we like to, than, than many analysts in the West like to impute. Uh, and the third piece uh, is a, a slightly longer a journal article in the journal uh, Asian Affairs by Nadej Roland, uh, who is the National Bureau of Asian Research. Um, and it describes Beijing's response to the pushback against the Belt and Road Initiative. And currently that is uh, free to access on the website. So I'll link that. And if you're interested, do uh, click on that link uh, sooner rather than later while it's still free to access. It's a very good description of some of the acknowledgement inside China about how the politics is going is going wrong and things that they are doing uh, to try to fix it. Very interesting. So anyway, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Charlie Henshaw for his help with audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you on the other side of the election. Thanks. <laughs>